Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you, Christ Chapel, be it in person or whether you're joining us through a screen. It really is good to be here. You know, I, I, I preach in different churches, but I love it when I look at my schedule and I see that Christ Chapel's up next. This has certainly become a, a home for my family, so it's good to be with you again. And today we continue to, to look at this uh, important question, why on earth? It's a great question. Why on earth did Jesus come to earth? Why would he do that? Why would he come here from there? I mean, I look at that bumper video and all the graphics on the screens, and it's, it's so inviting. This is a beautiful place. It's a little like those uh, South Dakota videos uh, and ads that you see on TV these days. I mean, I want to go to South Dakota. It's beautiful. Honey, pack the kids into the car. Let's go. Planet Earth is beautiful. Certainly that, that video displays that, but, but Jesus knew the reception he'd receive here before he came here. Why, why on earth would he come to earth? Why would he do that? This series that we're in, uh, collectively, week by week, answers that question, and today is no different. Today we're going to look at one of the answers to that broader question. So turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. We're going to be in John 3 and in John 4 collectively. I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit. I'm only going to look selectively at little pieces in there. And as you go there, let me tell you about uh, my dog. God used my dog to teach me a lesson today. Teach me a little bit about, about me. Teach me, in fact, a little bit about you too. Teach me a little bit about all of humanity throughout every generation. Now, that's pretty impressive because my dog's not a very smart dog. He's really punching way above his weight here. He kept going to his food bowl and his water bowl as if to find more food and more water there. And the rascal, I think, was trying to pull a fast one on him. You see, I had fed him already and I had watched him eat and drink. And as I said earlier, he's really not at the top of his dog class in IQ, so I think he was, he was trying to exploit a little bit the ambiguity in the Murphy household as to whether anyone has fed the dog. Sometimes he does skip a meal or two because we don't know who's fed the dog or not, but anyway, he was there, and he kept coming back to it. It caught my attention, and then as though he had a sudden, sudden moment of, 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 of genius, he rushed to the back door. And there's a little bell that hangs off the back door that we've been trying to train this dog to ring for six months to get out the back door, and he hasn't. But he did this time. That caught my attention as well. So I let him out, and I watched him hop onto the, this little wall that's in our back garden. It's kind of like a retaining wall. It's only waist height. And he hopped on, and he walked right across it to a bird bath that stands positioned beside the wall. He got onto his little hind legs and he stuck his head into this cement bird bath bowl and he began to drink and drink and drink and drink like his life depended upon it. I mean, he was so thirsty, he kept going. And when I peeked over to see, he was even licking the wet cement at the bottom of the bowl. He was thirsty. 
That little dog had done all he possibly could inside the house and then outside the house to quench his thirst, to satisfy his longings for water. And he did. In that, in that moment, uh, Mr. Barnaby became Professor Barnaby to me. Expert anthropologist. He, he knows the human condition. He modeled for me. He modeled for us the history of every generation of human being that has ever walked this beautiful planet. A dogged search to satisfy, to quench deep desires, deep longings, even going to all sorts of creative places to try and satisfy that thirst. You see, humanity, my friends, is in a state of dissatisfaction. Humanity is thirsty. A humanity is dissatisfied. Humanity has deep desires and gets extremely creative in, in the search to satisfy and to quench those desires, those longings, and anywhere will do, and everywhere will do, and we're even willing to drink bird bath water and link, lick the bottom of cement bowls to satisfy that thirst. Now, now, now don't get me wrong, uh, to thirst for water is a good thing, right? We've, we've been designed as human beings to, to want to drink. That's basic anthropology. We've been designed to long for many things, right? The tongue longs for water. The, the lungs long for air. The stomach longs for another piece of pecan pie. Thanksgiving. We long for it. We've been designed for it. You Americans know this well, right? It is an unalienable right of yours to, to pursue pleasure, to pursue happiness. God designed you for that. That's not wrong to pursue. The, the problem is where we try to find meaningful satisfaction. The problem is the creativity of a wicked heart that goes to all sorts of places in order to satisfy those deep longings. And so we drink, and we drink, and we drink, figuratively speaking, from bird baths too. You know, happiness surveys and happiness indices, and they exist, they indicate that, that generationally, we have become more miserable. And we can't blame COVID, and we can't blame civil unrest, and we can't blame the election year that we've been in because this has been going on for five decades. We've become increasingly more miserable. More money, newer gadgets because of better Black Friday deals, bigger house, another house, more holidays, more influence, more pretend friends on Facebook, more likes in our Instagram posts, all of them provide a little surge of happiness, a little spike of pleasure, and then it evaporates. It's gone. And all you're left with is, with, is an addiction for more. I want more. I want more friends. I want more likes. I want more stuff. Because it, it doesn't satisfy. For me, all of that stuff, in one sense, is like the most powerful force I have ever encountered in Texas. A bowl of chips and salsa at your local Tex-Mex. Those things are brutal. I mean, they just keep beckoning you, take another, 
have another. You'd love another. I mean, you can't even talk to the person that's beside you because your eyes keep going down to, I got to get into this bowl and get more chips and salsa. They're delicious. They're really good, but they leave you miserable. Perhaps even like that third piece of pecan pie that promised you so much and then only left you comatose right on the couch. Maybe that was the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know. Professor Barnaby simply echoes the wisdom of King Solomon. You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Here's a man who had everything. And he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that he he tried everything. Uh, Money, academics, botany, building projects, one wife, another wife. I'll take another wife. I'll have a harem. He was dissatisfied. I mean, he he enjoyed it for a little while, but he was left thirsty. It was like chasing wind, he says. And there are contemporary voices that echo the same sentiment. I came across, uh, and of course I'd heard this a long time ago, but I came across this week once again, the voice of Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones, and his famous song, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, I toyed with singing it to you today, and and, and thankfully the Holy Spirit stepped in and and put a stop to that, right? But he says, "I I can't get no satisfaction, and I try, and I try, and I try. And then he screams, and I try, but I can't get any satisfaction. This guy is everything that the world has to offer, just like Solomon had. We're thirsty. And yet we're still dissatisfied. Well, the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and chapter 4, presents us with two extremely dissatisfied individuals. And and they represent us all. They represent us all. They're there in the Scriptures, the inspired Word of God, because they should remind you of you. They're there to represent you. Now, in in the society in which both of these individuals live, they're on polar opposites as it relates to importance. And and their social classifications of who's significant and who's insignificant, they're on, on opposite poles, and yet they're extremely similar. They're the same. That's why in the Gospel of John, they're presented back to back, chapter three and chapter four. They represent all of us on the spectrum of dissatisfaction where we all drink and drink and drink in all the wrong places. So let me introduce you to them. Turn to John 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. Let me read them for you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Look at verse 3. Jesus gets right to the point because Jesus knows his soul. He says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying, you've tried religion. You've tried everything at your disposal. But you see, unless you're born again, you you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, verse 4, said to him, how can a man 
be born when he is old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, this conversation continues all the way through chapter 3 as Jesus essentially feeds him a little bit more salt to make him a little bit more thirsty, to make him a little bit more searching for the right answer. Now look at chapter 4. If you hop on over to chapter 4, verse 4, we go to a second individual, a second conversation. And he, that is Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. He's going from Jerusalem up to Galilee. You've got to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon, middle of the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there's two individuals and there they're having two conversations with Jesus and they represent all of us. And essentially they represent what I've called a spectrum of dissatisfaction. I have a little chart or a table in your sermon notes. It's on the screens as well. And I'd like you just to walk you through that to help you see how, how dissimilar and yet how similar these two individuals are before Jesus. Look at, look at that table. You have the two conversations that are there in the columns. Uh, and then you have on the left there, uh, the beginning category is ethnicity. Where are these individuals from? He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. What that means is that he is of God's chosen people. He is of, of pure lineage, whereas she's a Samaritan. She's deemed by Jews a cop-out of mixed race. A little bit of a hybrid, a little bit Jewish and a little bit non-Jewish or Gentile. And that's worse than being just full-blown Gentile because it means that you've betrayed the faith. You've walked away from your Jewish roots. Gender, he's a male, she's a female. That, that doesn't mean that much to us other than biological differences and important differences there, might I add. But in that world, that signal, he's important, she's not important. That's how they viewed gender those days. Social status, he's a ruler, she's an outcast. He's a member of the ruling group 
of Israelite society, the Sanhedrin. You don't get to be a part of that group. It's a very small group unless you're wealthy, unless you're important, unless you're deemed pious. You're at the top of the human food chain, as it were, in that society. She's an outcast. She comes to draw water at noon in the middle of the day when no one draws water at that time. And she comes alone. She's clearly not wanted in the community that she's a part of, as you will see in a second. She's a social outcast. Look at their religion. He's an expert theologian. He's a Pharisee, we're told. He's a Bible man. He's his PhD in Bible. He's a churchman. He's essentially a pastor, as it were. He knows what God wants. She's, she's not. She's, she's a, a confused theologian. I think I've been a little bit too generous even calling her a theologian. I, I, I sort of have called her that because she does talk about worship as the conversation goes on with Jesus. And she does talk about the Christ as she interacts with Jesus. But the more she talks, the more she betrays her ignorance. She really doesn't know the Bible, theology, truth. She fumbles around the, the, the topics that, that she's addressing. So society's verdict on, on him, societal condition that he finds himself is that he is significant and that she's insignificant. They're poles apart. And yet spiritually speaking, they're both the same. He comes to Jesus in the dark because he's in the dark. She, she meets Jesus in the heat of the day, drawing water because she's dry and she's thirsty. The, the context sort of speaks of their spiritual condition. And so is he dissatisfied? Is he needy? Absolutely he is. He needs new birth. He needs to be born from above. He needs light to see despite his social status. Is she dissatisfied and needy? Absolutely. She needs new water. She needs living water. She needs to drink that living water. So in John chapter 3, we meet a man who had everything, but he's still in the dark. In John chapter 4, we meet a woman who has tried everything, particularly in relationships, and she's nothing. She's dry. She's thirsty. Humanity is desperately thirsty, my friends, and, and we will try anything to quench it and to satisfy that thirst. And here's the thing, both of them, Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman, meet Jesus. They come face to face with Jesus, one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus came to earth to be met, to be encountered to intervene given our dissatisfaction. Jesus comes to satisfy humanity's thirst. That's one of the reasons that Jesus came to earth. As I said earlier, week by week, we're exploring all the, the collective answers to that question. Here's one. He came to satisfy our thirst. We're thirsty and we're dissatisfied. And Jesus has come to satisfy our thirst. He knows what we need. He designed us. Both of these individuals have a sustained conversation with Jesus. We read just the beginning portion of each of those conversations. In those conversations, 
Jesus approaches them in, in, in four distinct ways, and that's what I want to highlight for you in the, in the moments that we have left. The first thing that we see in both of those conversations is that Jesus is available. They're searching, and he's there. He's available. Jesus is available. He came to earth to be accessible. He positioned himself with proximity to individuals personally, face-to-face, one-on-one, to be met. He didn't stay there. He came here. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 again. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. We're in Jerusalem in chapter 3. Jesus is available in the most important city on the planet at the time. And he's available to one of the most important people in that city at the time. And he's even available at night when everybody else is sleeping. And particularly available to Nicodemus because Nicodemus wants to stay in the dark. Nicodemus doesn't want his buddies to see that he is approaching Jesus thirsty. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 again as it relates to his availability to this lady. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I told you that was noon. What I didn't tell you is that there's two other ways to get to Galilee that would avoid Samaria which a good Jew would take. You either go right or you go left, but you don't go through Samaria if you're a good Jew. But you see, verse four tells me that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? It's not because there's no other alternative route. It's because Jesus has a divine appointment with this lady at that backwater town, at that well, at that time. He wanted to meet her. He had to meet her. He came to meet her. He's... Tired, but he's not tired of people. I'm sure he could have just taken a little nap when, when the disciples headed on into town to get some food. But that would be sleeping through what purpose he had in coming through that area, which was to meet her. He doesn't tire of people. Night time or noon time, big city, backwater time, Jesus came to be available. And that screams out of his encounter with these two people. Jesus wants to be available. Secondly, look at what he does. He makes a direct connection. Jesus makes a very, very direct connection. He meets them where they are at. Nicodemus is in the dark. So look what Jesus tells him in chapter 3, verse 19. We didn't read this earlier. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness. Wink, wink, Nicodemus. You like the darkness. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And to this lady in in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says this, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. You see, we, we don't catch how unusual this is. The fact that he addresses her and the fact that he requests of her is remarkable. He's making a direct connection. She picks up on that. That's why she said, you, you ask me, a woman, and, and a woman from Samaria for, for a drink? 
This is very unusual, but you see, Jesus wants to make a direct connection. They're searching, and he, and he connects. Look at the next one on your sermon notes. Jesus knows backstories. Jesus knows all about them. Look at Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Ouch. That's got to hurt. There's irony here, right? The one who teaches Israel about God does not know one thing about God. Pastor Nicodemus isn't too good at his prestigious role after all. And he hasn't found clearly satisfaction and answers to his quests in life up to this point. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Jesus makes him face that realization. Jesus makes him face his limitations. Jesus makes him admit that he really doesn't know and that he really needs help, that he needs off his high horse. Jesus is not trying to embarrass him. Jesus is trying to help him. Even knowing his backstory and what that group would do to Jesus in the incoming years. Look what he says to her in chapter four, verses 16 and 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Remember I told you she was an outcast? We get a little bit more information on that here. The woman answered him, I have no husband, which is a deflective question or comment. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She struggles to come clean with, with her immoral lifestyle. But Jesus pursues it. Jesus can't ignore it. Jesus has come to, to deal with sin and the consequences of sin inside of humanity. And so he confronts her and he makes her face her sin. He pushes her, but he doesn't push her to shame her. He pushes her to help her. Jesus can only help her if she comes clean, if she confesses. She can talk about truth, and she can talk about worship, and where one should worship, and the Messiah all day long. But it's just talk if she's living like that. She's not living like a worshiper, though she can talk a good talk. So Jesus knows, and Jesus came to expose sin, but not to shame, but to invite us, them, to receive what he offers. What does he offer? He offers himself. Jesus offers himself. Jesus offers what satisfies human life, and what satisfies human life is himself. He created human life, and he created human life with a need for God in human life. And when God's not in human life, it's empty. It's chasing after when pleasurable for a little while, but then you're left thirsty. Look at the wonderful verse, very familiar, that is given to Nicodemus. John 3, 16, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That world, God loves. 
despite the welcome that he would receive, he can because he loves the world. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And look at the conversation with her in chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I'm he. I am the Messiah that you're talking about. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for, that you've been hearing about, woman. I offer you me. Jesus came to earth to satisfy humanity's thirst, and he's met with each of these individuals precisely where they're at so that they have an opportunity to satisfy their thirsty souls in him. So they would stop drinking out of bird baths. So they would stop licking wet cement to satisfy their God-given longings. This is a personal intervention so that they get personal invitations to life. St. Augustine, the pastor theologian of the 5th century, not the grass, he uh, pursued... I guess the world's chips and salsa, and it was tasty, but it was empty. When you read his confessions, which is his autobiography, you'll, you'll read about all that he pursued in life before coming to Christ to satisfy his thirst. It, it, there's lots of little stories in there. He tells one of how when he was 11, him and some buddies went into the neighbor's garden to steal fruit. And it wasn't because they were hungry, but it was the thrill of getting what was prohibited. He says, it was foul, but I loved it. For years, God pursued him as he ran from God, indulging in, in, in all that the world can offer you. And then one day he was out in another garden under deep conviction, struggling with God. And he sat there and he heard a little voice on a garden next door of a little child that was playing with his buddies, I guess. And the little child was saying, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so Augustine took that as his instructions and he picked up a little Bible that he had been sort of wrestling with and he randomly opened it to Romans 13, 14 where it said this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, right then, that's what he did. He put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the many things that Augustine wrote, and he has impacted the Western church in remarkable ways, here's one thing that stands out to me as just exceptional. He said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You made me for you, God, and I could chase all these other things, but until I come to you, whom I was made for, I am empty. I am restless. When I come to you, I find rest. You know what Augustine is telling us is essentially this. Jesus was available to meet him. 
that Jesus was making a direct connection with him, even using the voice of kids playing in the next door garden. Jesus knew all about Augustine's immoral background when Jesus offered him himself, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. He needs to be the core that all of your life revolves around. Even if you're a believer, because it's quite easy to knock God off the top rung of your priority list as a believer in life. Because there's so many distractions. The, the, the table's full of so much good Tex-Mex food that you get distracted. But certainly if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing will satisfy you until you rest in him. And so here's the invitation, satisfy your thirsty soul in Jesus Christ. Humanity's thirsty and dissatisfied. Jesus came to satisfy humanity's thirst. You can satisfy your thirsty soul in Jesus Christ. You were made needy. You were made needy. That's a good thing. You were made dependent. That's basic anthropology. The tongue longs for water. The lungs long for air. The stomach longs for pecan pie. The soul longs for a God. There is only one God. You were made to long for him. And unless you drink, drink, and drink, and drink of him, you will never be satisfied. You'll run around drinking in all sorts of places, all sorts of birth, bird baths. When you drink of him, even the new gadget, even a little bit more money, even some friends on Facebook will begin to taste much better. What I'm saying is this, Jesus is available not just to meet Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and Augustine and me, he's available to meet you. Jesus is available to meet you. Jesus is making, even this morning, as you listen to my voice through the screen or in person, he's making a direct connection with you. Right here, right now, personal intervention to offer you a personal invitation. And Jesus knows all about your backstory. Jesus knows your backstory. He knows what you were up to last week. He knows what you were thinking last night. He knows what you're drinking from. He knows you're in the dark. He doesn't endorse it. He wants to draw a confession out of you, not to shame you, but to save you. He offers you himself. Jesus offers himself to you, even knowing your backstory. So my friends, satisfy your thirsty soul in him. That's one of the reasons why Jesus came. Today is a day of new birth. Today is a day of, of light. Today is a day of, of drinking living water. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it, it cuts deep. We thank you that it, it brings healing to us. We thank you that we're able to understand your mind, your will, your plans, 
through exposure to it, and it reveals your son. Father, I pray that if there are individuals listening to this message today that have never drunk of the Lord Jesus Christ, they've never put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that at some point today, you would pursue them, that they would get on their knees and receive Christ. That they would simply call out. They would confess their sins and receive the offer of salvation. You so love the world that you give us your son. I pray that you would use Believers that are listening to me as well to go into this week eager to represent you. And that if they have notched you off the top of the priorities in life that they have, that you'd make it right back up to the top. That's the Christian way for Christians to live life. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.